welcome to Hope and Hard Pills, where we talk about racial justice and social change. I'm Alicia T. Crosby, and joining me this week is Corey Leak. Welcome back, Corey. Hey, good to be back. Thanks for having me. Heck yeah. So those of you who have been listening these last few weeks, you know that Andre is on a break. Um, and so we've been bringing in other members of the Hope and Hard Pills family um, to have conversations with us on the yeah. air, on the podcast, however you name it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, Corey, just just fill our, our audience in a little bit about your background. I mean, I know that you've been on the show before. This is actually y'all my first time talking with Corey at length. Um, yeah. Many people in the Hope and Hardfield team were in different places around the country. And so many of us haven't actually met in person. That's the case for Corey and I. So it's our first <laughs> time really interacting. <laughs> Which has been amazing. I'm 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 upset that this is the first time we've we've interacted. I, I'm grieving that right now as I'm like, how what have I been doing? <laughs> I wasn't talking to Alicia. <laughs> Life has been a waste. <laughs> I feel similarly. Now, we've had some really good combo off air, y'all. Yes, indeed. But yeah, tell folks about yourself, Corey. All right. Well, I live in the Bay Area. Uh, those of you who don't know, I'm married. I have three uh, three girls. I was about to say small children, but they're all teenagers. Um, and I am a podcaster, a writer, a social justice advocate, and activist, anti racism collaborator. That's I guess that's I guess that's it. I guess that's what I would how I describe myself. So basically, Corey does all the things. That's what you need to know. But as for this episode, this, y'all, is actually a super, super special one because it is part one of two of our season finale. Yeah, excitement noises. Applause. Applause. I appreciate that. So this is actually, yeah, it's a two-parter. So Corey and I will be recording this episode and invite you to join us for part two. Um and we'll, you know, share more about that in the outro. But this week's um, guests are Olivia and Kelsey of No White Saviors. So they mm. are a dynamic organization um, based in Uganda who calls out da, 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 white saviorism. Um, <laughs> they've done some really interesting work with media and on the ground in Uganda, and we're really excited to share their perspectives and their work with you all. So without further ado, here is this week's interview. No, it doesn't have to be oh, doesn't have to be this way doesn't have to be Okay. Hi, Kelsey and Olivia. Hi. Hi. Hey, this is the first time I've had two guests at the same time. So um, this is a hope and heart pills first. Thank you so much for your time and for being with me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So uh, let's jump into it. You two are the leaders of an organization called No White Saviors in Uganda. And I wondered if you could tell us about the name. Okay. Well, um, uh, No White Saviors is our Instagram handle. 
but mm-hmm. the organization is called uh, Kusimama Africa, mm-hmm. um, meaning Rise Up Africa. Uh, so basically, we use uh, the No White Savior Instagram to advocate, and you know, it's a space of learning, mm-hmm. discussing on uh, better practices in mission and development work, and then the mm-hmm. the Kusimama Africa organization here in Uganda highlights uh, the work led by Ugandans, the different organizations mm. that Ugandans are leading and coming up successfully, and also still um, advocating, sensitizing the community on those white savior complex, um, mm-hmm. and also using media and other platforms. So that's that's how we come in with our No White Savior Instagram handle. But then the organization itself is Akusimama Africa. Hmm. Yeah. So so tell so tell me about the work that that Rise Up Africa does on the ground. Uh, well, the offline um, work. Yes, Akusimama uh, Africa um, highlight, works with um, people in communities. It's, it partners with Ugandan-led organizations, organizations led by Ugandans. Um, we show the work. We help them to fundraise um, the different things they need in their projects, and they're, they're responsible for these projects. We are just here to just provide um, to just provide what they need to keep running, and um, mm-hmm. they are totally in charge of those organizations. We don't have any any we don't hold any positions in these organizations they're run by ugandans ugandans are leading them and um mm. we are also using yeah. kusimama africa to point out or to challenge the white savior complex in uganda through sensitizing the people the community when we visit a community for example in the stacy Dooley situation um kusimama africa was on the ground um, to sensitize this commu- this community, this family, and um, all the things they didn't know about taking their son's photo and all those kind of things, and um, also um, um, we partner with different with different organizations. Um, mm-hmm. Look at the we have Pina Uganda, we have. Uh, girls known brides we have so many so um mm. and also we um helping out to fundraise on the different um legal cases that are within the the white savior complex uh for example the two cases that we have right now they are we are helping in asking people who follow us to fund uh to help in the funding of this um of, of these cases for these mothers who cannot afford uh, legal fears. So Kusimama Africa mm. is like the mother, you know, organization here in Uganda, and its main work is to challenge the white savior complex. But how are we challenging it by being practical on the ground? So we don't show everything that we are doing on the ground because that is more of white saviorism. We don't, you know, most people want right. to show the world what they're doing pictures all the time. Yeah. So we are not doing that as an organization because we want to make a difference. We want a change in in the way yeah. work is done in mission and you know development sectors. So um yeah, that that is what we do on the ground basically. 
Yeah, and what mm. I wonder if you could tell me about the development of of the work and mm. what what was there like an inciting event mm. that made you say, okay, listen, like we need to fight white saviorism. Like, what was that? How did that come about? Okay, uh, it started years ago. Um, I actually I grew up in Jinja. Was born in Jinja. And Ginger is like the center of uh, the white uh, saviorism. There's so many white people in that town. And also I grew up seeing so many white people on the streets of Ginger with children. But because I was young, I didn't figure out what these people were doing with these children, actually, because I would see oh, so many mm-hmm. white people in town and moving around with uh, children. And... I asked myself what that was about, but being young, I didn't really realize how uh, how deep this was. And also some of the children that I studied with um, came from different uh, like orphanages which were funded by white people. And they kept on telling us different stories about how the visitors came in, how the white aunties were around, how they brought in you know, sweets and all that kind of thing. So I didn't actually get the whole meaning, but I really wanted to know. So as I grew up and joined the, like, the NGO world, I saw a lot of things, a lot of things that were going on in that space in the NGO world, especially NGOs owned by white people in Ginger. And the way mm-hmm. um, they were paying you know, Ugandans were working with them and the way that you wouldn't confront your white boss in case something was wrong, you know, and mm. there was so much that I saw working in there. And also um, I worked with Kelsey at one point, she was my boss and um, there were some white people in the organization and I, I didn't like the way this particular white girl was treating Ugandans. You know, I saw like, mm. You know, she made like people, cleaners work. She didn't want them to actually sit and rest, but she wanted them to work like the whole day. So such things. And then at one point, wow. I you know we discussed it. I told Kelsey about the whole thing. You know, we're not, you know, uncomfortable. But that is not the only thing. Still, there was a lot in that space, especially even the adoption of children. There were some things that were really missing. and. Um, we started discussing it. Um, Kelsey went back to the U.S. and they stayed in Uganda, but we kept talking, we kept communicating, and she used to write also about it. And I also used to write about it with another friend of ours called Sharon, who is um, currently mm-hmm. in Finland, but she's on all, she's on the team. So it started like a hashtag no white saviors and we started talking about you know different things and bringing out the different um situations that we had seen in ginger and this is how it all came about because personally for me from my experience um um as a ugandan as a black person i i saw so much happen in 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 ginger and you know no one was talking about it because mm, people really didn't you know not that they they didn't actually care but because they don't know that this is you know exploitation in one point this is um 
So the people on the ground didn't know that. And the people who were working in the NGO world were scared because they wouldn't talk about this. The moment you talk about that, your boss will fire you. They'll be like, oh, if you're not comfortable with how much we're paying you, then go, we shall replace you with someone. So um, I saw so much in Ginger, and that's why this started as a conversation um, to where we are right now. Um, It started as a conversation because of the things we had all seen in the different ways. Kelsey had also seen it in her own way. And me also, I had seen it in my own way. And yeah, that's how it all started. Mm, wow. And you mentioned a couple of things. There, there's so much that you mentioned that I wanted to, that I wanted to pull out of there. Um, mm. How do you spot a white savior? How do you know someone mm. who has a white savior complex? Oh yeah, Andre, that's so easy. Um, uh, <laughs> come on Andre it's so easy <laughs> Yeah, that is, that is just so easy to trace out someone who you know is rooted in that first they would um, they, they have they, they want to consume all the power in the environment if it's like in the NGO world it's, it's your boss they never want you to talk back to them if you see something wrong oh you should keep quiet um, because that is your boss so you're not entitled mm. to your opinion or you're not, mm. you can't suggest anything. And also, how do we see them? Look at the hierarchy of leadership in these organizations. You know, the director yeah. is white. The manager, you know, it's, it's, the manager is also white. The board of directors back in the U.S. are all family members. They are, you know, relatives or that kind of thing. And also, um, how do you support them when, when they give you a position here, like your manager, you're managing something, um, that is just a title. I mean, it's just a title to keep you, you know, confused and just to raise your spirits that you're in the system. But in the actual mm-hmm. sense, you're not involved in the decision making. You're not involved in anything, right. but you have that title. And we have seen all this happen. You know, we have seen this happen. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that um, people, someone will come out and say, I work you know, I work hard and I would be paid more if I was doing this in America, you know, and someone says that, mm-hmm. but in the actual sense, they have nothing they're doing on the ground. They're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. and there's so many like aspects where you can identify them. And for me, I feel, um, maybe I am getting into a different view again of, because if I see, Honestly, right now, if I see like a white person moving with a Ugandan child, I definitely say this is a white savior because, you know, Mm -hmm. um, people feel that they're the only ones who can save these children. Africa needs saving all the time Mm -hmm. and Africa is in bad shape. So we need someone to come to Africa and save our children and take them overseas. So, Mm -hmm. so many things around them, just, you know, even the preaching. Even the preaching, yeah. they preach to you something mm-hmm. that they don't practice. Someone tells you that, you know, Jesus said, you you know, we share. But at the end of the day, Jesus said you share, but this is your boss, maybe, or you're working with them. They never eat the food you eat. No, they'll move up at lunchtime. Mm. They go to a cafe and eat, you know, but that is the, that is something wow. that they'll, they will tell you, Jesus said you share. What does that mean? That definitely points out that you're not mm-hmm. the same because they're eating something different and you're eating mm-hmm. something different. So there's yeah. there's so much. There, there's a way we can identify, Andrea. For me, it's 
it's it's not even the fact that someone can tell you as a black person or as a ugandan tell you that if you don't want the job you can leave it i can employ someone else they're not even thinking about you thinking about how you feel they're not listening to you you know it's it's happening all this happens and we you know we see it's still there so yeah it's you can identify them in so many ways yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like it sounds like it, they come mm. and they're very hierarchical, mm. right? They want to they want to control mm. but not give agency that they, they won't take that they don't accept leadership from local people mm-hmm. and and I heard you also say in in a sense that it's not communal that they also they maintain those racial divisions there too as yeah, of course, Andre. Um, we have seen this happen where Ugandan startup organizations and they're being fought by white people, and you know, white people move in and say that organization is not on standard. You know, that Ugandan is being corrupt. Mm. They're taking money. They're mm. not giving children the food they need in that home or something like that. But then when it comes to mm. them, you know, they are taking more money than even this white, even this black person. They are taking money. They are paying themselves like, you know, like twenty thousand or eighty thousand US dollars. That is crazy money, you know. But when it comes to someone like a black person, you have no standard to do that. So that in your mm. mind, that will just definitely tell you that. Uh, I mean, you can never do something a white person can do. So you cannot run an organization because you're Ugandan, you're not on standard, you're corrupt, Mm. you know? So, I mean, they still hold Mm. on to that power. They don't want to leave it. I think we as white people, Mm -hmm. what we see happening here is that we we find moral justification for our corruption. It's still corruption, right? But we find a way to say, Mm. to make justifications and to validate it and say, okay, so I deserve to be paid 10 times or 15 times a salary, even though most of the time the Ugandan staff are working far, far more hours, working harder and doing more strenuous activity and labor in the NGO um, the white people, we will find a way to justify why we're being paid more because of some perceived sacrifice of us living here when really no one no one made us come here. We're all here because we chose to be here. And so mm. the fact that we choose to come here, our money goes mm. further. It's actually it, you you actually should be trying to justify a lower salary because the money goes so much further here. You'd need a lot less to live off of while in Uganda, as opposed to the US. And so it's both, you know, corruption exists everywhere. It's just that we, um, when it's corruption of white folks and people with more access to power, there's a way of trying to hide it and cover it up and make it something, you know, dress it up as something nicer than what it is. Hmm. This is, I think this is a good segue into just talking about misconceptions about Uganda and Africa in general, because I hear two, I hear two things happening, right? Is one is that it sounds like the very people who say they're coming to help have their, have anti-blackness that they're expressing in their work, mm-hmm. right? And saying that Ugandans cannot, you know, that, you know, saying that in, in all these different ways, saying that the local people are inferior to what oh. they're able to do or they're, in, you know, all that kind of thing. So I hear that, but also I, I hear that about even just being in Africa, that 
you know, it is true. People in the States, when someone says, I'm going to Africa to be a missionary or to do, you know, what they, they may call aid or charity work or humanitarian work, whatever, people in the States go, oh my gosh, like you're an amazing person because you're going to this horrible, dangerous, impoverished place is how people think about Africa in the States. And so I think this would be a good just segue for, you know, you two to talk about, you know, the misconceptions that people have about being about Africa and about Uganda. <laughs> well, I think the first misconception that people have about uh, Uganda, Africa is that Africa is a dark continent. You know, mm-hmm. if if you had, if, if like someone told you, you're going to a dark continent, you expect to find their darkness everywhere. There's no actually light. That is one mm-hmm. thing, you know, that people, that's like a miss, you know, but when you come here, what do you see? It's the opposite. You see the light. You see that Africa is very beautiful. You see that, um, you see that everything is really um, natural, different, nice, and beautiful, and then also the different um, um, different thoughts that people have about Africa is that when you're going to Africa, you're going to meet um, it's full of diseases. That's one thing. Oh yeah, you're mm-hmm, going to Africa. Mm-hmm, it's full mm-hmm. of diseases. It, there's a lot of malaria. There's a lot of AIDS. You know, I mean. We we don't have that space. We we don't have people who are actually healthy. Um, you're coming to interact with people who are just so sick, mm. you know, who are mm-hmm. sick, and mm-hmm. you can't share anything with them. That is also something that they have, and also um, people have a thought that when you when you're coming to Africa, it's it's all about like it's poverty everywhere. It is um. Mm. It is poverty, it's poor infrastructures, but it's wrong. When you look at South Africa, we call it here in Africa, we call it London of Africa because it it has a strong economy compared to those, to some of the European countries. Um, what would mm. I give an example of my only country like Uganda? When you come here in, in capital Kampala, we have actually, if if we ask white people who live in Kampala, what do they miss? Apart from the mm. snow, what do they miss? Apart <laughs> <laughs> from the snow. Honestly, what uh, do they miss when they miss? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so good. What do they so miss? Fun. Yeah, because we 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 have we have um shopping malls, we mm-hmm. have food stores here, we every have every kind of food. Every kind of food. Every kind of food. So, you know, we have everything. We have nice, they're nice apartments for these people. Beautiful restaurants. Yeah, and beautiful restaurants. They are driving very expensive cars mm. here in Kampala, you know. So um, I just sometimes, like, you know, feel that before you come, someone tells you, gives you this impression, oh, my gosh, where are you going? And then what is also... A different thought about Africa and Uganda as a whole is that people come and they say, oh, you're going to Africa. It is so corrupt. That is wrong because there's corruption everywhere Mm -hmm. in the world. You know, even in America, there's corruption everywhere. But these are some of the things that people coming, come here knowing and also some people come here knowing that Africans cannot be trusted. They are thieves. They are liars. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's some people who come with that in their mind. You know, 
but you can be robbed anywhere in the world. You know, you can be killed anywhere right. in the world. Look right, at yeah. America. Here in Uganda, mm-hmm. I'm very free. I can move anywhere and I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. But just see in America gun violence, someone comes in a restaurant, a white man and begins shooting at everyone, you know, mm-hmm. but here you don't even mm-hmm. need to fear. You don't need to fear, but those are thoughts that you're coming to a war-torn area. Africa is just full of war. It is just, you know, this is a continent that was, people come knowing it's already disorganized. Yes, I know that we were disorganized way back from slavery and colonization, but right. we, we there's, there's still much going on. Mm. Africa yeah. grows every right. day. It devolves yeah. every day. And then people also still come with that thought that I'm going to a third world country. Yeah. A continent, mm-hmm. a third world continent. And in this continent, the way they refer it to is that you, you don't expect to find like a, a washroom or anything like that, which is not the, no, mm. it's not a fact. Mm. It is not. Right. When you get here, as soon as you land at the airport, it's a different impression of how, you know, the stories have been told. You know, yeah. our stories have been portrayed to the world in a very, very different way. Those are not our stories. Mm. That is why people mm. have all these perceptions, mm. misconceptions about Africa, because our stories mm. have been told in a wrong way because the white people mm-hmm. want them told that way, but that's not how we want them. Mm. You know, I am speaking yeah. right now, but you can feel that I am disagreeing on every thought that those people have like towards yeah. Africa. Because they yeah. they tell our stories the way they want them to, you know, they want them mm. to be, but not the way we want them to be. So that's why I always say that Africa has its own story. Mm. We have our own story right. as black people, as Africans. Yeah. So, and I think also, I just wanted to say something really like, I mean, all of that is incredible. Um, and it's so on point with what contributes to white saviorism and why, you know, the narrative that's played throughout media, throughout the news, um, movies, all of that in books, the way that Africa, and like we can talk about Uganda in particular, but we could also talk about the continent as a whole, um, the way that it's portrayed and the way that our presence as white folks or foreigners is portrayed mm-hmm. is as if it's always inherently helpful. We're always going to come in and save the day and solve the conflict and cure the disease. And, you know, it's always, that is always the narrative. It's never the the side of the destruction and the violence that we've right. committed. And I think that that's what that's the like very, very real danger of whiteness on a global scale is that predominantly white nations are always given the benefit of the doubt to the point where it's incredibly dangerous, like where we whitewash yeah. history and we ignore the violence committed in the name of colonization and the transatlantic slave trade and and just so and now our foreign policy um, and we ignore those realities and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and always talk about our good intentions and the good that's been done, while as you know, black and brown nations never get that. It's always everything Olivia said is talking about like all of the negative and all of the seeing only the the, mm-hmm. the disease, seeing only the the way that Africa hasn't developed or Uganda hasn't developed, seeing the corruption or all of these things that again they exist in our countries and a lot of times at an even larger scale if we're talking about corruption, right. but 
we ignore those things. Um, and that is, I mean, I, we can't help but see that and identify that as a very serious product um, and very dangerous product of white supremacy. Yeah, what I hear you saying, I hear both of you saying, is that there is history on the continent in Uganda that is important and, and that it factors into the problems that, that you're fighting and to the problem that people are bringing when they come. And I wonder if you could say more about that, that history. I know that, I know that Liv, when I ask you that that's something important to you that you wish people would ask mm. about the history mm. before they come over, before they go over there. Yeah. I mean, um, people should ask like the history, the history of Africa, especially when it comes to our cultures and our way of life before they come here because, um, and people should actually get to know the history, the true history of Africa, that we had terrible times of slave trade. We had colonization Mm -hmm. of the African continent. It didn't Mm -hmm. leave this continent the way it got it. You know, we right. had minerals taken from Africa. We had mm-hmm. so many things taken from us. We had our freedom taken from us by the colonizers. They made decisions for us. They, they, they created the boundaries in Africa. They named the countries in Africa. You know, they mm-hmm. discovered rivers which were already in existence. The John Speaks. Yeah. He was the first white man to see the Nile. You mean there were no people here in Uganda, the black people who saw the, the river before he came? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there is... Someone says they were the first people to see, to discover mountain Rizori. And you're like, that mountain was there way back. You know, it was way as back. If the people there had not discovered as, it. As if the people <laughs> there had never seen it. So I, I, I always like want people to first understand our history before they jump in. Right. There are so many people who actually pretend to know Africa more than us, the people who live mm. here, more than us who are born here. And someone is trying to teach you African history when they are white. So many professors of mm. African politics and African history are white. Like I think that we've we've did a survey once, and I think almost everyone responded saying they've had a professor who taught not just like a section of a course, but like an entire course that, and I had one, I had an honors African politics course at Temple in Philly. She was a white woman who spent two years in Burundi and now she's an expert on Africa. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Wow. And also the fact that um, when people come in here, because they have read that history that has been written by white men in books, they know that, oh, now I know about Africa. So I can just jump in and go and, you know, begin like treating children. Because someone wrote mm. in a history book that there were diseases that dis- like disturbed people in Africa way back. So you come in with that history from a white book. You've not even taken time to mm. read from African writers. You know, mm. people mm. who have experience and who know the history of this continent. But because you read from someone else, you just come in Africa, you're like, oh yeah, I can do this there because they need this. They they need they need mm. um they need food. They it's it you know, they someone right. comes in because of that. So 
actually people that are coming to Africa should know that they are visitors on the African continent. White people should know yeah. that they are visitors on the African continent. You know, if a visitor mm. comes to your house here in Uganda or in Africa in our traditions, if a visitor comes, it is me. It is me to take you around. It is me to give you right. water. It is me to give you food. But it is not you to give me, you know, it is different. Right. So um, people should understand that matters I'm going to the continent, as a white person, I am a visitor. And I'll always be a visitor right. on that continent, you know, because mm. it has people who have lived there. It has its own people. It has, you know, right. its own um, everything. So I would prefer people coming to come in as visitors and listen listen mm. when you come here you know don't set the rules for us just as it is mm. it is happening right. someone comes in from the US or America somewhere and they set the rules on what should be done here this is how you should mm. do this this is how you should parent your children but every day I am always asking Kelsey here American children are the worst the white children they're so so <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole podcast oh my god I'm like Kelsey uh, recently we we went to a restaurant and and we're sitting and some little French kids some French kids were actually with like their grandparents Andrea, the way these kids were screaming back at their grandmother, I'm like, Kelsey, okay, this is the, the, you know, the European parenting, the white parenting. So, and someone comes in Africa and you tell me how to parent my child when your own children back home are answering back to you. They're calling the police on you. Parents? So, oh my. I mean. Mm, wow. Yep. Yeah. If wait, 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 wait. So, Calling the police on on, on their parents. If you beat a child back in America <laughs> and they call the police on you, they will call the police. Oh yeah. They will. <laughs> also, yeah, they let's will. clarify the word. When you say beat, they mean spank. Spank. So beat sounds like <laughs> <laughs> we need some like nuances within the vernacular. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what they say in the South too, where I grew up. They said they called it a beating, but but yeah, spanking is a good clarification. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they'll call the police. They'll call the police on you. But then you find white people coming here, you know, telling us the way on right. you know parenting, and also coming here. And someone says, "Okay, I am now um I'm now talking about how African uh, families should behave, married people should behave." Honestly, how many broken marriages are in America? How many people like break every mm. day? I mean, for us, someone can mm. get married like for 60 years or something like that. But in America, those are the, the list. You know, people break up every day. Yeah. Homes break up. There's so many divorces. <laughs> but you see, people don't look mm -hmm. at these things back happening back in their country or in the continent but they want to dictate on what we should do here in africa even when it comes yeah. to our own families you know even when it comes yeah. to religion and ray there there are people who mm. will come and dictate what you should this is what jesus wants you have to do this you have to follow this you know mm. you have to mm -hmm. wear like this mm -hmm. you don't have to wear mm -hmm. like leggings you don't have you have to wear long dress I mean, this is all still happening. So people who are planning to come to the African continent, all in all should come, you know, the white people should come knowing that they're visitors. And know? come with humility, man. Yeah. People, when you see yeah. other people traveling, like 
when people come, there's more humility and a desire to learn and a desire to adjust to the culture and the place that you are. But for white and Western people, so much of the time we are inserting ourselves and demanding that the country we're a guest in accommodate us. And that's peak privilege. Peak whiteness is saying, I'm showing up in your space. I'm showing up in your country and I need you to speak my language. I need you to adjust to my culture. I need you to serve me the food that I like. I need you to Mm -hmm. hold the cultural norms and the, you know, that that's, yeah, it's, and also the ideology of white people coming to Africa and saying that I am just doing you a sacrifice. No, I mean, mm. no one, you know, I keep on telling Kelsey that no one calls white people on the African mm. continent, but they're coming. No one writes them letters, but they're coming to spread yes, the gospel to right. do this. And someone says, mm-hmm. I am sacrificing to live in Africa. I don't get the whole right. point. And that God called them. And, you know, God called me. <laughs> God, God called them too. Right. Oh yeah. And, that is- okay, so okay, so let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about okay the because <laughs> I don't know when this is gonna air, but I mean we should probably put this out like around June or July when a bunch of white people are gonna start going on. Oh, they love, the the they love the summer. They love the summertime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and so you've mentioned a a few times. You know, people mentioned God called them there. That people are coming there for missions. You know. From our, let me tell you about from our side, right? And you mentioned it. From our side in the states, everybody thinks that you know the biggest sacrifice that you can make is for you, you know, that you go to Africa and try to spread the gospel, right? In fact, in fact, people used to pray. You know, people, a lot of people will tell you when they were young in evangelical circles, everyone was praying that God wouldn't send them to Africa. So that's that's just how messed that's just how messed up people's idea. Mm. of of Africa of Africa is. Mm. So so people go and they take pictures and they post to Instagram of the, them with a bunch of, you know, African children and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And they pat themselves on the back because they're doing what seems to be the highest good to them in white evangelical American Christianity. Mm. What is it really like in Africa? What are the what is from your perspective? Ooh. What are what are Christians, evangelicals, oh, missionaries man. coming and actually doing? Ooh. Actually, I think I'm just going to begin by saying that America needs more Jesus than Africa. <laughs> yes. I'm a I'm a snap for that one. <laughs> Honestly, because there's so much, there's so much that goes on in America. There's too much. Mm-hmm. So the American mm-hmm. people need more Jesus than the African people. That's one thing that mm-hmm. those guys actually should know. And then um, mm-hmm. um, what happens and, you know, when missionaries come here and what? Um, Andre, so many, the, the cases that I've seen, so many white missionaries just hide in this, you know, in this a whole system of spraying the gospel. Because, Andrea, mm-hmm. if you're going to pay your worker um, less than 50 or, you know, 50 US dollars, something like that a month, and you are paying yourself like 100,000, then I don't know which Jesus you're worshiping. That is the white mm-hmm. Jesus, definitely. And mm-hmm. a Ugandan, you, you don't even have time or you don't have um, time to talk to your Ugandan workers 
They, they only come to your house to work and go away. There's no time to interact with them. And also the fact that people are preaching the gospel of Jesus, which says that Jesus never discriminated anyone. Jesus uh, mm -hmm. calls you the way you are. Jesus loves everyone. Mm -hmm. And then you come here and you have different um, like services the one that's attended mm -hmm. by white people and the one that is attended by the Uganda masses, that is different. That is so so they segregated service? Oh, yeah, there are churches that have done that. There's also um, an organization that would have a volleyball game in Jinja. This was very recent and they were had it open to everyone. And then they started, it's a white evangelical organization. Mm. Um, I'm naming it. Mm -hmm. You can cut it out if you need to. Heal Ministries based okay. out of Nashville, okay. um, Tennessee. Mm. And these are people that have lived the high life, like the young, one of the guys, no, there's no qualifications, no reason they should be here, no background in the work that they're doing, except this call, divine call from God, that God told them to come to Uganda mm. and serve. But really, I mean, you see this very high standard of living this is someone who was able, he posted online, I remember a few years back, posted online that he spent 200 US dollars on Haagen-Dazs ice cream. That's more than, I guarantee that's more than he would pay any of the Ugandan staff for an entire month of their work. Now, this is someone professing. So let me get this straight. Yeah. Let me get this straight. So people say, okay, God called me to come to Uganda. And they, you know, everyone, everyone here goes, oh my gosh, you're making such a big sacrifice, you know, because... They think that there's no civilization in Africa, yep. right? And then, but they're actually, but you're seeing many missionaries kind of living much better oh, lives yeah. than they would have. That's great. That's what Africa. they don't want you to know. No, no, no one is doing us a sacrifice, mm. especially when you live along the source of the Nile in Ginger. That is a very like expensive place. You buy yourself like a big mansion in Ginger. You're not, you know, you're not. Oh, yeah, they can, they can afford. They can afford to have someone watching their child, someone, maybe one or actually probably more than one person cleaning their home, doing their laundry, um, yeah, watching their kids, cooking their food, doing their errands. Um, so all of these things, oh. they would never, like we as white folks would never be able to afford all of that in our home country. So we come here and actually live a life that is much easier for us and most who would come and adjust back, especially those with families, would have a much harder time adjusting to life in back home in the U.S. or a Western country because they would their money would not go wow. as far. Yeah, wow. oh, yeah, that's something most wow. of, most missionaries will never let you know how how oh. easy their life. Most missionaries can live a very good life here. No, it doesn't have to be. Oh, doesn't have to be. All right, so as always, dynamic interview. Corey, I'd love to hear sure. like your first impression. Yeah. I mean, so many, but I, you know, this, I guess my first impression honestly was it, it brought to mind one of my favorite sound bites from Minister Farrakhan when he was talking this white this older white guy was interviewing him and was asking him about like how corrupt Africa is and and uh, blah 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 and Minister Farrakhan after the dude asked the question was like Mr. Wallace like <laughs> my first my first thought was 
how white folks um, talk about Africa in such disparaging ways and the perception that white folks have of Africa and to hear people Mm -hmm. who are there boots on the ground going, actually, all of that is fictitious was just my first. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that struck me the hardest from it. How about you? Yeah. No, I mean, that was definitely something that stayed with me. Um, Especially because, like, I think about, like, how, you know, white folks frame things. And I don't even just want to say white folks. But people frame things in a way about Africa that is, like, totally untrue. I mean, like, Olivia specifically was talking about, like, how folks kept talking about, like, an entire, this, not a country, because sometimes people act like Africa's a country. Africa is a continent of many countries. (laughs) But how the entire continent is, like full of corruption and disease and violence and poverty. And like, it just was so beautiful. And then also a little humbling when Olivia is like, so I'm more afraid to go to America and get shot up in a, like in a restaurant than anything happening to me here. Like I'm good here. And, you know, but yeah, there are like all these like false narratives about like what happens on the continent um, because of, just racism and white supremacy and the history of colonialism. For sure. And speaking of colonialism, when Olivia talked about minerals being taken away from Africa, I was like, yo, they really took vibranium. Like, like they really, they really did take that stuff out of there. It was, it was, uh, it was very eye opening to hear that for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What's super interesting and like in, in looking at like her conversation just with some of my own learnings like outside of what we do in like the podcast I remember you know I can't even remember which class it was in but like so I'm in grad school like many of y'all already know this and in one of my courses we were specifically talking about like the history of relations between like Africa and and Europe and just how like definitely like there's been like you know centuries of extraction of resources and people Mm. um but also there were favorable relations at one point in time that were undermined by like people i think in like in the enlightenment era specifically but those relationships were undermined and have led to like even more of a a crisis as it relates to bad relations so where there maybe was a favorable view of people like in the past, particularly like by monarchs, in thinkers wanting to kind of like climb up the social ladder, um, specifically said and did things to undermine those positive social relations that lead us or led us deeper into like colonization and led us deeper into um, white supremacy taking root and reign. Mm. It's just really a fascinating yeah. thing to like learn about, like that's historical and because that's one of the things that like Olivia had encouraged us in this episode um to do was to consider histories um yes so I'm wondering considering that like history is like whitewashed oftentimes right like Mm -hmm. histories are incredibly Mm -hmm. subjective how can we access fuller or more accurate histories like what are your thoughts on that yeah well I mean I like Olivia's overall stance a lot throughout a lot of this podcast was that like we need to allow indigenous people to tell their own stories, to um, have Mm -hmm. agency over their culture, over their narratives, Mm -hmm. over how they help the people in their own uh, countries, in their own communities. 
And I think that's where we start with history is allowing the people who were there to tell the story. Like when, when Olivia was talking about mm-hmm. the white man who was the first to discover the Nile, <laughs> when like mm-hmm. you got people living around that river who have been seeing it for generations and some white guy shows up and mm-hmm. is like, oh, I discovered this. It's similar to what's it. happening here in America with Columbus. Yeah, it's like it's like that whole that whole thing. I, I think sometimes I, I feel like we've been so gaslit with how mm-hmm. we've learned history that it almost feels strange to us to think, wait a minute, how did you discover something when people were living there? And and we and our our brains start going well. There has to be something we don't understand. And that thing we don't understand is mm-hmm. that uh, white folks have colonized history, and it's not okay. And I think that so for me, mm-hmm. when I think about how do we how do we al- learn um, the the actual history, and I think that the simple answer is mm-hmm. to allow people who are from those cultures to um, to shape our narratives. Absolutely. I I would agree. I mean, the only thing I would add to that is to name. um, I think that there is power in, there's definite power in understanding that there are multiple histories at play because Mm -hmm. there are multiple perspectives and like Mm -hmm. history being based on subjectivities means that if I only rely on one account, and I think that that's one of the things that, um, colonization and westernization like have oriented us to do to believe that there is a singular universal truth and that we have to adhere to that truth and accept that truth it shuts out so many people from being heard from their perspectives being seen from their histories being named um yeah and so yeah like i think that's the thing that's particularly meaningful for me like just in personal practice like understanding like okay like they're it's this is a puzzle and in order to see the picture most clearly we need to continue to like add in like different voices because that's what's going to allow for the pieces to be laid down okay so when you say that it brings up this question for me then for you like what mm-hmm. what piece of the puzzle is the the european narrative that has sought to dominate history and be the predominant voice of everyone's history what part does that play? Because that, that is a part of the narrative. That's a part of history. How do we fit that in? Or like, that's that's like when you say all that, I go, okay, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. But what do I do with their perspective when it's been so evil and so wicked for so long? I think um, what we do with it is like understand the motivations behind it and how it has Mm. altered the histories of the other people. I don't think that it has Mm. to necessarily fit into the framework of the main puzzle that we're constructing, because we can construct our puzzle outside of what they've brought and what they tell us the picture Mm. should look like. Um, Mm. But I think we can understand the fact, or work to understand how how those things have impacted us and perhaps like what else was enacting itself upon those people who were, you know, who were responsible for things like conquest and domination and like genocides and violence. Like what was motivating them to do that? I mean, oftentimes yeah. somebody's degree of insecurity, whether it's insecurity and in like not having enough by way of resources, insecurity in terms of somebody wanting to make a power grab. It's oftentimes mm-hmm. I think insecurity mm-hmm. that's a motivating factor behind like those movements, but nonetheless, um, I don't think, yeah, I think in the construction of our puzzles um, and, uh, and our, you know, holding of history in new ways, 
we don't have to add the piece in, but just be aware of be aware of it, I think is enough. Oh, that's big. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think as a closing question for you, Corey, um, I'll ask something that Andre actually asked an episode and it's how can you identify white saviors? Like how have you, how have you been able to identify people who are white saviors and like in your world or in your perspective? Yeah. You kind of touched on it a little bit and and is that I'm doing you a favor kind of, you know, mentality that, you know, I didn't ask you for this. But you thought it was so important that I have it and that that now now I'm somehow an ingrate or I'm now the villain in your story because your narrative suggested that I needed something from you that I didn't ask you for. And I think when you start seeing white folks, like you said, have those sort of visceral reactions to um, you not needing them or what they've offered is a telltale sign Mm -hmm of the white savior. And I would say that within the evangelical church, when you start seeing white male evangelical pastors who are leading large organizations, when they sort of um, implicitly expect to be celebrated because they hired some black folks is another telltale sign. When, when you are, when you when you when you have black and brown faces on your website and or when you point to instances where you talked about race and expect to be patted on the back for that like it's it's just like it's this big deal to talk about racism when there's nothing else really that you want to be patted on the back for because racism is it's like racism is not uh, one of the evils that plagues humanity. If you talk about um, alcohol abuse, you don't expect to be applauded for that. But the moment you talk about race, it's like, oh, we did this whole race thing. It was so awesome, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah, that is that is absolutely white saviorism that you just, mm-hmm. you, you want to doubly colonize. <laughs> like you want, you, you want to be celebrated for talking about the thing that your ancestors did to mine. Absolutely. And I'm actually grateful that you you brought up, you know, the church and the evangelical church, because in episode two of this, we are going to talk a little bit more about specifically how religion and white saviorism come together. I mean, we've touched on it in this episode, but we're going to get like deeper in um, in episode two. But I think that like what you're saying is spot on and um definitely isn't even just at work in religious organizations. So, I mean, I've, I I work in a lot of different spaces because of like my consulting work and just like my experience over the years. Um, And this is definitely the case in the nonprofit sector too. It's like, so as soon as you bring a person Mm -hmm. of color on board, it's like, Oh, look what we did. And it's just like, you hired someone who was qualified. Like, but like in, in, in this post-racial world <laughs> that people like to pretend exist, it's like, but look, we've got a we've got a black or we've got an Asian. Like, what? Like, like but, but we do don't see so race. much work we don't to find color. one that was qualified. We found yeah, we found exactly. the one. The one. They are they are the Neo. Um, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm gonna stop cutting up. I'm gonna be good. Um, I'm probably gonna be less good next episode, y'all, because we're gonna like in us talking about religion. We get to talk about religious violence, and y'all know how I feel about that very strongly. Um, oh, but that being said. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give you the rundown of some reflection questions like we do every week. Um, and then, yeah, let's, let's get to it. So in terms of questions for you to reflect on this week, what are some stories that you were taught as a child that included white savior narratives? Considering that history is whitewashed, how can we access fuller or more accurate histories? Why do you think white saviorism is not spoken about? How can you identify white saviors? What experiences have you had with white saviorism? How have you had to confront yourself or others as it relates to this concept? So thank you for listening to part one of two of our season finale with No White Saviors. I am Alicia T. Crosby, and I'm super excited that Corey Leak is joining me today. Thank you so much, Corey. Oh, wow. It was it was my privilege, my honor to be here. So stay tuned and be on the lookout for episode two, because remember, this is a two-parter. You'll hear some info from our producer, Ross. Um, thank you to all of our patrons who have helped make this possible, and we'll be with you soon. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic patrons. Thank you for being a part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. If you want to join in on the work on our Patreon community, just look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, aliciatcrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Peace.